Greetings reader fans, welcome to episode 7 of Data Slate, Lave Radio's book review show, The Space Pilot's Best Friend When Waiting for Clearance from the Space Station. I'm your host, Station Commander Alan Stroud, and this episode we'll be talking about all the latest news in science fiction and fantasy before bringing you our reading recommendations. Joining me is elite paper-folding archivist Colin Ford of Top Shift Renown. Good evening, everyone. And Rory Scarlett, seasoned veteran of Retrolave, our computer game review show. Good evening, gentlemen, and everyone else. Welcome back, Rory. I think the main thing that we will start with before we get into the news is when can we get some Retrolave back? Oh, I know. I do, I do miss those. They were good fun. It just seems that we'd got to the point where we could start using the multiplayer games. We'd, we'd gone from all the single-player games, and I think everybody was itching for the multiplayer games just to basically kick each other's backside. Where, where did we finish? Was it Free Space 2? Uh, yeah, we did Free Space 2, and there was a couple of multiplayer games of that, but we never actually managed to... Oh, we had the usual technical difficulties. It was a pain in the bum. Well, I bowed out at that strange one with Bruce... Campbell in what was that tacky uh, on the fringe that was it. yeah tacky on the fringe and we we did some multiplayer in that but of course it was quite power uppy yes so it was like basically being in a multiplayer platform game so you were going around and, and I, I didn't work any of that out I was trying to just fly and fight and then Vigor was just wiping annoying. the floor with all of us <laughs> is what you're trying to say it was it was kind of Mario Kart wasn't it the way you sort of fly through a power up and you spend your power up and then someone else would power up and yeah i found it was a bit sort of three-dimensional mario kart if that makes sense oh. yeah absolutely it, it does but I, I just i think what's interesting is of course is that subsequently we've then played the alpha of elite dangerous the beta of elite dangerous the the full game of elite dangerous and actually we've not found you know all those sort of moments where we went and tried out all these sims and there was sort of a hierarchy of this person was good at this and this person was was better at this and it tended to come down to fairly standard things we've not really found that in you know we didn't find that in the the alpha and the beta and then of course once we get to the full game we hardly see each other nope we don't <sighs> very rarely see anyone i know nowadays i must admit Unless it's a, you know, let's all meet up at Lave type thing. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you know, that. I, I think what we probably want to do, we probably need to get onto the gang and, and sort of say, when we're at Lave, let's find something to do. <laughs> no, getting, the, getting the gang back together, getting the band get back together yeah, then. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's go out and, you know, cause some mayhem somewhere. It's always... <laughs> Always good fun. Good idea. So, Retrolabe, we'd love to have it back. I don't think we can pin it all on Rory to <laughs> to try and make that happen. <laughs> nah. Being the fact that Colin and I are just as guilty and the uh, the fact that, you know, we've not we've not put the show back together. But certainly it would be great to bring it back and uh, and look through a few more Flight Sim games. I think that uh, I think there's a lot of demand, a lot of call to, you know, to chat through and review a few more Flight Sim games. Mm. Hopefully sometime when all of us have some free time, we can book some flying in a different universe. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so turning to today's news, we've got a couple of things to talk through. To start with, we're going to look at Mad Max Fury Road. Now, we covered this a show or so ago where we were looking at the trailer. The interesting thing that we've had since the release of the film is the amount of review comment that has come up about it so guys have you noticed what's been going on on the web in relation to mad max fury road yeah i must admit i'm a little shocked maybe this is because i can i consider myself to be a a level-headed type of person but in reading through the synopsis i did find i did find out that we've got charlie Theron's character is the leader of what is known as the waves which is a, a lot of women who have have run away from effectively some bad guys and the bad guys want these women because they want to kickstart the human race and it just seems to me that just because you've got a very strong female lead who basically is quite powerful and important to the story that seems to have offended a lot of people on the internet for some reason yeah, it's, it's really interesting in that I'm just looking at the dailydot.com at the moment and just the opening of the article about it. We haven't seen film reviewers this gushingly superlative about a movie since last year's Boyhood, but apparently Mad Max Fury Road is bringing even harder critics to their knees. So mm. far, the film has a 98% fresh rating at Rotten Tomatoes, with even its only rotten reviewer conceding that it's visually spectacular. 
But there's one group of critics who are frothing with rage over the film because, wait for it, it's about women. Now, this is kind of, it sort of touches on a little bit of what we've talked about before about the Hugos mm. and, you know, the situation that there is in, in SF at the moment. I guess this is another symptom of what's there. We're kind of looking at this kind of reactionary group of people not liking the way in which something that they've held on to that should work in a particular way being reinterpreted yeah well it I, I don't know i mean when you look at the synopsis you sort of think right well i can understand why this tribe of women would club together you remember in mad max 2 it was a small community under attack constantly by raiders mm. Uh, mm. and it's the same kind of thing except the people who are under attack by raiders are effectively mostly women and they've got to fight and they've got to stand up for themselves and it just seems that if they have a bunch of women who are able to kick ass as much as the men, that seems to offend a certain group of people. I think it's also it's because they've picked up on the fact that he's less of a protagonist. Mm. Now, to be fair, if you look at the contrivances of the first three films, he kind of falls into the circumstances, doesn't he, every time? Oh, every time. But the contrivance to get him to fall into the circumstances is usually sort of dealt with in the first, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. Mm. And then what he does is he ends up leading whatever the group is. Apart from Mad Max 1. Mad Max 1, slightly different. You know, he's already sort of caught up in what's going on. But anyway, with 2 and 3, he sort of falls in and then ends up leading people towards whatever they're doing. As almost like the deliverer. Mm. He just effectively delivers freedom. He delivers achievement. He delivers, you know, whatever. Mm. And I guess with this, because the emphasis is slightly different in that regard, Charlie Theron's character has that slightly more plot related role that more active that more protagonistic role then i guess that's what people are not liking because they see it as some sort of betrayal no i think it's about time you you sort of you have the, this kind of partnership in the movie sometimes i think that there's been well not lately but back when the original mad max was, was about it was definitely bloke turns up bloke saves everybody blokes buggers off it's, it's basically a high plane drifter and it's nice to see in this case a partnership being formed which yeah. is even better no i agree and i'll be clear in terms of the way in which i'm talking about this i'm i guess i'm devil's advocating a little bit here colin in that i think it's fantastic and it's more likely i was going to see it anyway mm. actually turning around to my partner karen and talking to her about it she said oh actually i wasn't interested i am now <laughs> so you know it really does demonstrate the difference. And I think as well, can you, I, I mean, if you guys both seem unforgiven. The uh, Clint Eastwood film. Yeah. Fantastic yeah, film. Yeah, very good film. Interesting thing about it is that it's sort of an evolution of his earlier characters of that lone gunman. With the high planes. Because. Pale rider yeah, sort of thing, yeah. Yeah, because the later character, you know, the unforgiven character, despite the fact that, yeah, okay, you still get this sort of one man against many yeah. at the end. Mm. Sorry if I'm spoiling it for anyone who hasn't seen it in the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> oh, is it but... 20 years ago now? <laughs> it's it's oh, kind of going so up that old. way. Despite the fact that Yate does go into this sort of one man against many, there are so many elements in the plot up until that point where other people in the film are driving matters you know yeah, there, there are certain bits where it hands off certain bits where it's it's you know it's sort of more interesting in that regard and i think that this is kind of taking that another step and moving that on did you see captain america winter soldier oh yes i've got yes. that on, on blu-ray okay. so i think for me the disappointment of that film was actually that scarlett johansson's character black widow wasn't as much of a protagonist as I'd hoped she might be. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Strong and female. Yes. Yes. Able to do stuff. Yes. yes. But plot, the plot didn't revolve around her achieving very much. Does that make sense? Well, admittedly, she didn't have as much to do as, as good old Cap did. But then again, it was titled Captain America and not Black Widow. <laughs> okay, I'm in my place. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, no. Thanks for putting me back in my box. Now, one, of, one of the things I do agree with you is that Black Widow is such a good character, she does deserve her own movie. And, yeah. and how come Marvel haven't done that yet? Well, I mean, they are, to be fair to Marvel, they've, they've done, a, I think, a, a reasonable job with female characters in, in their movies. Admittedly, mm. <laughs> Thor went straight back to the um, must-rescue damsel in distress mm. type moment. 
But apart from that, I think that they've balanced out the gender equality quite well. I kind of, I, I mean, I went to see it. I went to see it with my partner, and <laughs> she wasn't as impressed, yeah. to be fair. But yeah, no, I, I, I understand the point. And I mean, this this situation is kind of slightly evolving, isn't it? Oh, really, yeah. much as we can deplore that there isn't an equality, and and I do. I think that parity within films and finding ways to have female characters take the lead just as much as male characters do, I think, is really, really important. The problem is that you still have formulas and sometimes it takes quite a lot of collective movement to try and change that. And of course, here we, you know, what we're discussing is we have a reaction, don't we? We have a, a reaction towards holding on to something that's familiar. Yeah, I mean, films are evolving, aren't they? I think. I mean, Mad Max 2, when was that made? 30 years ago? 25 years ago? I think in the 80s was a heyday for what, what you'd call a, a bloke's film, you know, films like Predator, Robocop. You know, I don't think there would be many women that would say they watched and enjoyed those films. And, and Mad Max might fit in that bracket too. But now I think studios and directors are realising that films aren't really made for just men nowadays. Yeah, there's an interesting parallel, actually. If, if you take The Taming of the Shrew, the Shakespeare play, mm-hmm. the very outdated attitude of that play, you watch it any point in my lifetime, any point in your lifetime, Rory, even any point in Colin's lifetime, <laughs> you would still consider that to be very prejudiced, very, very wrong and very outmoded mm. and, and everything else. And I guess this is almost like a, a parallel. Mm. The idea of Mad Max Fury Road having this different balance of characters of different genders. I wonder if it's if it's sometimes it's as simple as the marketability of it like yeah, absolutely if you if you make a film that only men are going to like you've instantly got rid of 50 percent of your market yeah, haven't you absolutely and and i think that chimes nicely in with black widow mm. in that you know there was a large swell of viewing figures for you know she uh, scarlett johansson did the film she did called lucy oh yeah the telekinetic mm. film, oh yeah i've not seen was, it but i know the one you mean yeah but she was she was basically the lead there was a huge spike in the box office for it now it was it was a science fiction film i think it was luke besson directed it but the point is is that actually the spike was kind of related to the idea that people wanted to see her helm a superhero franchise lucy isn't black widow but but the closest you know, she's going to get at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was her as the protagonist, her as the person leading the film, moving the film plot on, etc., etc. So I, I think there was certainly some tie, you know, in relation to that. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so moving on, we're sort of segueing into a topic that's fairly similar to this, in that the latest release from DC Comics is the trailer for the new Supergirl series. Now, quite an interesting trailer, particularly as it's 6 minutes 37 seconds, as opposed to, you know, 1 or 2 minutes. Now, you kind of expect a normal trailer, don't you? You know, Mm -hmm. even for a TV series, about 1 minute, 2 minutes. But no, this is a 6 minute 37 second trailer. Um, You've seen it, Colin. Yes, I have. What did you think? I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for all things Superman anyway. This one really did stand out for me. Now, I know that DC and Warner have been building up their own little franchises on the side with Arrow and Flash and things like that. And I don't know whether or not Supergirl will share that universe. We have a cape that has been delivered from Kal-El. We have a costume that is very similar to the costume from the movies. Well, until I see Henry Cavill turn up in the Supergirl thing, then I know that I'm going to consider it separate. Because I've yeah. I got a sneaking suspicion that, you know, they will say, right, this is our TV series, and if you want the big boys, such as Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, go watch the movies. These are the, the ones you wouldn't have expected to helm their own movie. Certainly not Arrow, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. I think, I mean, also, there are some clues that do support what you're saying, because we do see in the trailer, we see an origin story related to Kal-El that isn't the origin story from the film. No. There has been some talk about different people playing some of the super characters when they are doing a cameo in, in the series. I know there was some talk about there being a Superman cameo in The Flash. There was some indication that it might not be Henry Cavill. So mm. that suggests that there might not be quite as much of a, a sort of pull together as we'd hoped in that regard. I agree with you with Arrow. Arrow's interesting. I mean, Arrow's a bit formula. I watch Arrow every episode. I like Arrow. Don't get me wrong. It does feel a little bit formula in terms of how it works, whereas I think they kind of learnt a bit when they produced The Flash 
I think the Flash actually has a little bit less formula, less obvious formula to it mm. as it's moved on. Although saying that Arrow at the moment has got much more, you know, with Ra's al Ghul and the League, it's got a little bit darker and a little bit more interesting in that regard. With Supergirl, though, the interesting thing here is I certainly going through the trailer, like I said, six minutes, 37 seconds. So the interesting thing about it is that it's kind of a hybrid. It's almost like three trailers stitched together. Mm -hmm. They're looking to unify a couple of markets here. They're also looking to use some of the ritual, some of the ideas of particular types of TV series. So we begin with a Devil Wears Prada. Yes, office, office thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pastiche is probably the best word, okay? Yes. But we have Callista Flockhart channeling Meryl Streep, and we have our head... Melissa Benaust yes. channeling Anne Hathaway. So that's interesting in itself. And there is obviously there's a stifling atmosphere to Devil Wears Prada. Yes. And then we have an antidote to that of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's it pretty sort of right. Okay. It's, it's someone enthusiastic about being a superhero. Yeah. I think it was also the try and fail elements, mm. you know, because obviously Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man set the benchmark of trying out powers testing powers and of course other superhero films have done it since yes and then you have this saving a plane all super people do that that's the superman's it, supergirl super dog i was gonna say exactly that <laughs> you know it does seem to be the regulation kryptonian job is <laughs> saving a plane full of people well to tell you the um, truth boeing must be very very glad that they exist in that universe because the boeings that fly in that place i wouldn't want to get on a boeing anyway that seems particularly well done they've used lighting in that they're in the dark and you always know that when you're using big sort of cgi stuff doing it in the dark helps you because mm. it covers some joins but the point being is that when superman returns did that that was like the money shot oh, of was... superman returns and now we're seeing it in a tv series you know so kind of yeah we've, we've moved on a lot so anyway, this sort of middle movement of discover who you are and then we have this third act which is basically the flash Arrow, pick another superhero TV series where we have a superhero working for a secret government organization or secret independent science organization or vigilante squad that are secret. You get my point. Yeah. Essentially, you know, it's a trailer that's, that runs over these three different things. But saying that, even though we've got this set of three tropes, you also have quite a few things in there, little things in there that show they're aware that they're tropes and they're going to take them elsewhere. Yes. Yeah, the little hints that um, what you expect is going to happen isn't going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. The ways in which Supergirl is forced to kick down the doors to get people to let her do the things that she's going to do. And we saw some of that tension in Man of Steel. Yes. Where essentially Superman was saying, you can't control me. I'm not going to adhere to everything you say, but I am your ally. And I think there is a little bit of that here as well, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, they're going to expand on that a lot more in the next movie. But yeah, in this one, there's definitely a, uh-oh, another Kryptonian? Oh, God help us. Yeah, and I think as well, certainly something I was very concerned about with the idea that we're going to do a treatment of Supergirl is that there is a natural way in which she slots in as uh, as a lesser superhero to Superman. Mm. In all the, the previous stories and, and stuff, she came second, she's slightly younger, and so on and so forth, and following in his footsteps, and this, that, and the other. And actually, they use a couple of elements to kind of say that, but they make it very clear that it's about her decisions, not about him mm -hmm. guiding her. Yes, yeah, I, I did like that last thing at the end of the, of the trailer where the, uh, Jimmy Olsen turns up to, and says, right, here's the cape. This is from your cousin. Here's the cape. And he's had it all this time. And she says, why didn't you give it to me earlier? And, she, and the most important line was he wanted you to make the choice. Yeah, absolutely. I think there were two, actually. There was that line was cracking. And then they gave Callista Flockhart a, a lovely line earlier on where she was discussing the problems of the word girl. <laughs> yes. And you know, how owning the term Supergirl didn't have to be Superwoman, etc., etc. And that was just so telling. That smacked to me of really good writing. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it could be a really, really good series. I was coming to the trailer sceptical because I was worrying that it was going to be a bit of a, oh, it's Superman, but it's a girl. And actually, I've come out of the trailer going, no, you know what? This could be a really good series. Mm. Oh, you said I was scared of another Smallville. I'm not a fan of Smallville. 
everyone else thinks, well, you must be because you like you've got all the, the Superman comics. I went, well, yeah, but I'm not really a fan of it. I'm with you. You know, Smallville's kind of it was kind of a bit Dawson's Creek with superpowers, and that's kind of done. You know, the American series is where it's about the relationships first, and then because we don't have that much of a budget for CGI and special effects, mm. it's about the other stuff sort of a little bit second. That's sort of a little done. You actually, you have to fuse the two things because otherwise they're not real people. You know, if you spend too much time on happy, stable life and then, oh no, it's all threatened. Hmm. Oh, but we'll get back to the relationship issue. Oh no, it's all threatened. Evil bad guy. The evil bad guy stuff feels a bit tacked on and actually you you need the two things to fuse. And it looks like it will. Looks like it's going to be good. Okay, and on that note then, we're going to go to an advert break and we will come back with Rory's book choice. Space can be lonely, but sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth, partying the night away in Yorkville on Aquila, or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special. And will let nothing disturb you. Greetings Commanders, Second Technician Fozzer Forrester here. If you'd like to catch the crew of the Orange Sidewinder, we broadcast live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST. Fly safe, and if you can't do that, fly dangerous. Is your life And welcome back. Right, we're going to delve straight into the books then. So this week, Rory, what have you got for us? Um, This week I have got a book called Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which I very much enjoyed. I read it probably five or ten years ago now. And it's a nice book that doesn't only deal with science fiction as maybe a layman or someone who doesn't read science fiction would imagine it. Does that make sense? This particular book is the first in a series of four, ultimately. So... It's kind of the beginning of a... Saga's not really the right word because it doesn't really go on like that, but it's the introduction into a series of four books and it certainly leaves you wanting more at the end. But what I particularly like about it is the themes that it deals with because there are only a handful, maybe half a dozen, seven or eight really main characters and the book is told in a series of chapters, each from these characters' points of view. And in these chapters they are describing their own personal experiences based around the central theme. So mm-hmm. shall I read you the blurb from the back? Yeah, um, absolutely. And then I'll talk a little bit about the background. It's the 29th century, and the universe of the human hegemony is under threat. Invasion by the warlike ousters looms, and the mysterious schemes of the secessionist AI Technocore bring chaos ever closer. On the eve of disaster, with the entire galaxy at war, seven pilgrims set out on an epic journey. Their goal, the legendary time tombs on Hyperion, home to the Shrike, a lethal creature, part god and part killing machine, whose powers transcend the limits of time and space. The pilgrims have resolved to die before discovering anything less than the secrets of the universe itself. So, basically, humans have expanded into the stars, which is run by humans, you know, there's no kind of extraterrestrial inference. Another thing about this book that I like is the technology isn't central. I find that some science fiction can sometimes get bogged down with the technology. In this book, it certainly doesn't do that. But there is one central piece of technology, which is a system called the Farcasters. If you imagine Stargates, but on a kind of domestic scale, a bit like a sort of yeah. door, so you could step through this door and all of a sudden you're on another planet kind of thing. So that's, that's the kind of central piece of technology that they deal with. Um, and the fact that the internet has basically evolved into the nth degree, and that sure. is run by a clan of artificial intelligences called the Technocore. And the Technocore can kind of not predict the future, but extrapolate all known variables to a point where they can predict the future fairly accurately. And so the human senate that run the hegemony kind of use them as um, advisors. However, everything that the Technocore do is dumbfounded because of this thing called the Shrike and the Time Tombs. And the six or seven pilgrims that have been sent to the Time Tombs to plead with the Shrike have all got a history with the Shrike, knowingly or unknowingly. Each of the six characters or seven characters has a completely different theme. So it's a lot, It's almost like a book of short stories, but with a, each story having a central theme. Does that make sense? 
Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It has been described that way. I mm. mean, that's how several reviewers have described it. I think for me, the interesting element here is obviously Hyperion's an older word taken from Keats's poetry, where he developed a, a very long poetic saga that covered the the War of the Titans mm-hmm. in Greek mythology. So the rise of the Titans and the way in which the Titans fought against the Olympians. Mm. And it was an abandoned poem, so he never he never actually completely finished the, the piece. But I'm aware that Simmons, in writing this, Keats's poetry was kind of integral yes. to what he was putting together. Yes, that's right. Not so much in the first book, in this Hyperion. Certainly mm-hmm. in the following books, Keats and one of the characters has a particular connection with Keats. So in terms of what you're saying about the structure of short stories Mm. and how it works in that way i guess it's not patchwork then is it discrete streams so essentially you you go through one narrative yeah and then you go through the next one first for example a chapter is from character x's point of view the next chapter is from character y's point of view oh oh so it is it's a patch yeah right but it's not just six or seven chapters alone with points of view there are links between them at the end and at the beginning of each because they're almost memoirs because they're kind of telling each other their own Uh history the end of each chapter they bring it back to the current and then the next person introduces their story so oh i see i see makes sense so yeah so so you know and i'm i'm reading here a little bit of uh stating a bit of influence from from chaucer you know which essentially the canterbury tales structure is yeah, it's very so a load of people. Yeah, load yeah. of people get together and yeah, tell each ver- other stories. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. Okay, okay, interesting. So you've almost got, I guess, you can play around with the best of of both things there. In that you've got the present, the i.e. the the occasion when they're actually telling those stories, mm. and you've got the recounted time. That's right. Yeah. As well, so you can kind of you've got two narrative lines going mm. on in terms of what it's doing. Mm. The thing, the hook that actually got me is I'm not religious in any kind of way. I'm completely mm. unreligious. But one of the characters in particular is religious and the whole theme around the Shrike and the Time Tombs is it's kind of a sort of pseudo-religion anyway. And the yeah. way that this particular character recounts his memory and a colleague's memory is from a Roman Catholic point of view. And in, in, in this 29th century, the Roman Catholicism is basically non-existent, you know, it's down to a few thousand people. But the way that the book deals with religion is clearly from someone who I don't think is religious. Right, um, sure. And, and, I, and I, I'm not, like I said, I'm not religious, but I, I really find that interesting, the way that the book deals with religion. You'd have to read it to see what I mean. It's hard for me to explain. If sure. No, no, that's, that's fine. I mean, with my academic writing, mm. one of the science fiction scholars and also well-known story writer, Australian writer Damien Broderick is particularly well-known for his academic work first. Mm. And then actually you find sort of his short stories and some of his novels sort of turn up at different things. And he put together a sort of fairly recent, you know, in the last 10 years recent list of the 101 best science fiction books that you should ever read. Mm-hmm. And there was actually it was quite an outcry because Hyperion didn't feature. All oh, right. And I have an interview here with another fairly well-known science fiction blogger, Stephen C. Ormsby. And he was asked directly, why do you think that Dan Simmons' Hyperion make the cut? And he batted that back of, why do you think it should? Mm. And then he went into explaining. And he was talking about the fact that the whole series, the idea of the series, is incredibly ambitious. And there is a way in which we as readers of science fiction marvel and wonder at ambition. We Mm. do love Mm. when a writer is capable of constructing something for us that has this vast scale to the way in which it works. And certainly from what you've said and from what I've read of Hyperion, it seems to have that, that sort of vast scale. And he was kind of saying that, Actually, though, he didn't think the writing was very good. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite interesting to see how that duopoly mm. works, because I think actually there's, there's a fair amount of that in science fiction. In that, And it's not, it's not to, to diss the writers, and I'm not necessarily saying that Simmons' writing isn't any good, because I haven't read it. I, you know, I will, I will pledge and undertake right here and now to go and, <laughs> and you know, go away as my quest to go and read Hyperion. <laughs> but, 
But the point here is that just this different slant that science fiction writers have about ambitious story, because it, it sounds massive. You know, The Undertaking sounds absolutely huge. Yeah, I mean, the initial Hyperion book isn't that huge, but as a, as a collection of four books, yeah, it's, it, is, it is very large. But I particularly like the first one, not yeah. because it's the first one of the series that I read. It's because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of short stories anyway, and just the different points of view just keep you interested, I think. You know, you don't get bogged down sometimes. How does he manage the device of the narration then? Although there are half a dozen, seven or eight main characters, the yeah. book clearly favours one of them and right. starts from his point of view. Um, okay. So generally kind of falls back onto him as the kind of, not the main character, but you feel like you're experiencing it from his point of view whilst okay. reading the other chapters. Does that make sense? Okay. It does. It wasn't quite where I was going. Sometimes the issue in writing is about tell and show. But there is a clear way in which you can show stories in that when a character's experiencing something, you feel it with them, you're with them when they do it, rather than hearing them talk about what happened. Yeah. What I was trying to get to is, are there any devices that he uses to kind of drop you in the stories as if you're there? Oh, it's it's all done. The chapter starts with the person who's telling their story, yep. you know, I shall now tell you my story, blah, 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 introduces yep. their story, and then it's as if you're in that memory. Ah, that's, yeah. that's what I was yeah. getting to. Yeah. Right, that's much more interesting. Yeah. Because obviously with Chaucer's setup, you know, this distinction between tell and show wasn't as well developed. Right. And so essentially you have people recounting story right. and you know and that's okay it's all right as a device and it's not it's not too bad and you know you can kind of get through it and, and everything else but this idea of then making it a media mm. or essentially flashing into the story yeah that's what you do yeah introduces it and then you're in that memory reading it as if it's happening right there and then i was kind of thinking if he didn't do that it was going to feel a bit tired well, it sounds like Dan Simmons has obviously has, has used that modern contrivance, mm. makes it a much fresher read. Mm -hmm. You know, if you spent all that time going, ah, oh, and then I went oh, to yeah, the, and... the West Wall and, oh, and no. I didn't see anybody, and then I told so and so that I should do this and blah, blah, blah. No, that no, would no. be rubbish. No, no, it? Yeah, no, it's it definitely good. not like that. Yeah. Good, good. Sounds much more immediate. Okay, so where can we pick up Hyperion? Well, the obvious place really is Amazon. It's eight ninety nine paperback, four ninety nine Kindle. There are some obviously used options. <laughs> I think the only hardback option I can see is about forty odd quid. So it's obviously not in print anymore in hardback by the looks of it. Published by Galantz. Okay. And have you got a section you want to read? Yeah, I've got a, about a page worth of extract. This is from the priest character, because they're all, they're all a variety of individuals who have a variety of lives, obviously. And this particular character is a priest. And this is the, the chapter that actually got me into the book, and it's lucky it's the first one, really. The cave walls and ceiling were encrusted with crosses, ranging in size from a few millimetres to almost a metre long. Each glowed with a deep pink light of its own. Invisible in the torchlight, these glowing crosses now suffused the tunnel with light. I approached one embedded in the wall nearest me. Thirty or so centimetres across, it pulsed with a soft, organic flow. This was not something that had been carved out of stone or attached to the wall. It was definitely organic, definitely alive, resembling soft coral. It was slightly warm to the touch. There came the slightest whisper of sound. No, not sound. A disturbance in the air. Cool, perhaps. And I turned in time to see something enter the chamber. The Baikura were still kneeling, their heads down, eyes lowered. I remained standing. My gaze never left the thing which moved among the kneeling Baikura. It was vaguely man-shaped, but in no way human. It stood at least three metres tall. Even when it was at rest, the silvered surface of the thing seemed to shift and flow like mercury suspended in midair. The reddish glow from the crosses set into the tunnel walls reflected the sharp surfaces and glinted on the curved metal blades protruding from the thing's forehead, four wrists, oddly jointed elbows, knees, armoured back and thorax. It flowed between the kneeling bikura, and when it extended four long arms, hands extended, the fingers clicking into place like chrome scalpels, I was absurdly reminded of his holiness on Peckham offering a benediction to the faithful. I had no doubt that I was looking at the legendary shrike. At that moment, I must have moved or made a sound, for large red eyes turned my way and I found myself hypnotised by the dance of light within the multifaceted prisms there. Not merely reflected light, but a fierce, blood-bright glow which seemed to burn within the creature's barbed skull and pulse in the terrible gems set where God meant eyes to be. Then it moved, or rather, it did not move, but ceased being there and was here. Leaning less than a metre from me, its oddly jointed arms encircled me in a fence of body blades and liquid silver steel. Panting hard but unable to take a breath, I saw my own reflection, face white and distorted, 
dancing across the surface of the thing's metallic shell and burning eyes. I confess that I felt something closer to exaltation than fear. Something inexplicable was happening. Forged in Jesuit logic and tempered in the cold bath of science, I nevertheless understood at that second the ancient obsession of the God-fearing for another kind of fear, the thrill of exorcism, the mindless whirl of dervish possession, the puppet dance ritual of tarot, and the almost erotic surrender of seance, speaking in tongues and zen gnostic trance. I realised at that instant just how surely the affirmation of demons or the summoning of Satan somehow can affirm the reality of their mystic antithesis, the God of Abraham. Thinking none of this, but feeling all of it, I awaited the embrace of the shrike with the imperceptible tremble of a virgin bride. Great. Yeah. You can tell. I mean, it's a weighty text. There's a certain amount of redundancy to the way in which it's describing because the writer is basically describing something and then re-describing yeah. it yeah. in a slightly different way. Mm. When you're writing that way, what you're doing is essentially you're concretizing the image. And at the same time, you get the reader used to the idea that things are going to take a bit of time to develop. Mm -hmm. If I was going to make an elite dangerous comparison, I'd make the comparison between Drew's writing and my writing in that Drew will spend more time on setting the scene and setting the, the description of what the thing is. And that's fine once you're used to the way in which the writer is guiding you. Yeah. Whereas in my work, it tends to be quite bam, 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 bam whistle stop and straight through and you know rushing along mm -hmm. so yeah no i mean it's it's certainly got weight the way dan simmons is writing mm. okay that's great so that's hyperion by dan simmons you'll find the link on the lave radio website and we're gonna go to a quick ad break and then we're going to move on to colin's book choice is your life like this take that evil pirate scum pew, 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 pew. <laughs> Second technician Chris Forrester to the gantry. Second technician Forrester to the gantry. The vending machine is broken. I repeat, the vending machine is broken. It could be like this. Drive charging. fiction and fantasy festival which celebrates creativity and is inspired by the computer game elite. Join us for board gaming, LARP, cosplay, LAN, tabletop roleplay, workshops, special guests and of course Elite Dangerous. LaveCon 2015 is being held on the 11th and 12th of July just outside Northampton, England. Book your tickets at laveradio.com. Adventures Unlimited. Just last week I was mixing Sidewinder Slammers at a seedy space bar. I wasn't even pilot registered. And now I have a ship and a basic starting mission for the Federal Navy. Owing to recent actions in the Lave region, the Federal Navy now seeks to recruit another 1,000 entry-level pilots. We need you to add your strength to our military machine. I'm going to see the galaxy. We have missions for all pilots, regardless of combat experience or flight hours. Come and talk to us and we'll get you on the military ladder. Join the Federal Navy. Make a real pilot of yourself. Or die trying. Wait, what's that? Is that, is that a ship coming? Are they looking for me? What do they? And welcome back. Okay, Colin, what have you got for us? Well, I have probably the anticipus of Pulp Fiction. We have the Lost Fleet series. Now, the Lost Fleet series is written by a gentleman called John G. Hermy under the pen name of Jack Campbell. And it is a series which is set a hundred years plus into an interstellar war between two different human cultures, the Alliance and the Syndics. And what 
particularly happens in this case is that the protagonist, Captain Blackmark Jiri, he is woken from hypersleep basically because he was involved in the very first battle of this war. And the Alliance fleet at the moment is going for a last desperate strike against the Syndic homeworld. It turns out that this last desperate strike turned out to be a trap. So if you can imagine it, it's probably the worst situation for a massive fleet to be in. And I'm not going to give anything away because this happens in the first chapter anyway. All the commanding officers are sent off to the Syndic flagship to negotiate a truce and then are summarily shot, leaving poor old J Captain Blackjack in charge of the entire fleet. And what I really like about this whole series is that it moves with a thumping good pace. Although it sounds like you've got a massive fleet of characters to deal with, it actually only deals with the fleet captains and, of course, the people on the bridge of the flagship Dauntless. It works along three different levels. First of all, it tackles the subject of a manner of time. This is someone who's been out of this war for a hundred years, and therefore all the professionalism and all the tactics and all the knowledge that people need in order to fight a war like this have been lost because everyone's been effectively killed and there's no one to pass that knowledge on to the next level. So he's come back in and he's found that there's, there's really no order to the fleet whatsoever. And he has got to actually train this entire massive fleet into how to fight properly and not just charge straight at the enemy and hope for the best. And the second point is the actual battles themselves. This, this is as close to hard science fiction as you can get with this kind of genre. He's taking... All the battles take place sublight and they take relativity into account. So that means if two fleets are flying towards each other at uh, 0.1 the speed of light, that's actually 0.2 the speed of light as they close. So that means any maneuver that you make, the enemy probably won't see for another three or four minutes. When you take relativity into account because of the distances that they're discussing is so vast, what maneuvers you make can just completely throw people off because as the closer you get, everything speeds up too quickly for most people to handle, which is why the, the fleet's resorted to just running at each other. Now, what he knows is, is how to fight these battles properly. And because it's been a hundred years, discipline has broken down in the fleet and he's got to re-establish discipline. He's got to break people and then build them back up again. And then on top of that, he's got to deal with a whole load of political situations with all the captains, because the captains are used to voting on what tactics to use. They're not used to a, a proper top-down command structure. And to me, the, the whole thing, basically from start in Dauntless all the way through to Book 6 in Victorious, it was a real relentless page-turner. The good thing about it was that I only came to this once all six books had been printed. I would have hated to be halfway through, say, book four, and then have to wait another six months uh, to a year before the next one came out. It was, it yeah. was that kind of, that kind <laughs> of, all oh, right, got to get the next one. Mm. Now, the one thing that is leveled as criticism is, on this is that there are certain passages where you feel the author is repeating himself. But he responded to that along the lines of, well, sometimes people are coming in on book three. They haven't come on in book one, so I feel I've got to reiterate the point. So that is a, a very good point, because for most of these, you don't actually need to have read the, the previous book, but it helps a lot. Sure. Okay. Well, it, it sounds like, I mean, you've got two or three different things going on in terms of, by the use of the returning old character, essentially you're able to then ally him with the reader and have them both discover the current situation together, can't you? Because he doesn't have the knowledge of what's going on in the current situation. You know, he can experience it with the reader. Yeah. You, you see what yeah, I mean? Yeah, that's, ex um, that's exactly it. I mean, that's that's a nice device and it's something that, you know, that sort of gets done occasionally and, and what have you. The interesting thing about the physics that's used in space combat, I find that fascinating because, well, you know, my bear with very little brain moment whenever it comes to science fiction <laughs> or science elements of science fiction. I find it it's always interesting when a, an author tries a different interpretation that cuts a little bit against what other authors are doing. So if we, you know, you can make the elite comparison with, artificial gravity yeah mm. you know that obviously that changes the color of the novel mm. quite distinctly so you end up with a, a slightly different you know sort of stylistic idea and i guess here you've got the same i i'm assuming you don't have 
one-seater fighters no. roaring around. No, the, no, the, the one thing about the, the, the battles in this, that we're talking fleet actions. We, we're yeah. talking uh, as if the aircraft carrier or the, spa- or, the, or the carrier doesn't exist. You've got your battleships and your cruisers, you know. Um, the, the guy in question, he was an ex-destroyer um, captain in the, in the U.S. Right. Navy. So he's taken a lot of tactics that he's learned and then applied them in a three-dimensional space and then mm-hmm. added in good old relativity just to really throw you off. <laughs> okay, interesting. Have you got an excerpt you want to read? Um, yeah, I do have an excerpt, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right. This is just when he's been caught to the shuttle break by the present admiral of the fleet, and he's basically just out of suspended animation for about a month, so he's not feeling all that well. So, Captain Geary, I wouldn't blame you for wondering if you'd been better off if we hadn't found you. I thought a lot of people thought it was a harbinger of good luck. Blackjack Geary, back from the dead to accomplish the Alliance fleets in its greatest victory. Bloch closed his eyes for a moment. I need to leave this fleet in hands of someone I can trust. Geary grimaced. He wanted to yell at Bloch, tell the Admiral that the man he wanted to leave in charge of the fleet wasn't the man actually standing here. That such a person had never existed. But Bloch's eyes weren't simply dull, Geary saw now. They were dead. He finally just nodded slowly. Aye, aye, sir. We're trapped. This fleet is the Alliance's last hope. You understand, of course. If something happens, do your best. Promise me. Geary fought down another impulse to shout his objections. But breaking the ice inside him would be too hard, and a stubborn sense of duty instilled he couldn't refuse. I will. Listen, Captain. Bloch leaned in close, speaking very softly. Dauntless has the key on board. Do you understand? Ask Captain Dejani. She knows and can explain this ship must get home. Somehow. The hypernet key must get back to the Alliance. If we can do that, then there's still a chance. And the ships and the people we've lost haven't been in vain. Promise me that, Captain Geary. Geary stared, not understanding and shocked, even though his numb senses by the pleading in the Admiral's voice. But it wasn't like Geary to be in charge forever. Block would negotiate with the syndics, then return and be back in command. Geary would never have to learn any details of some key on the Dauntless that somehow related to a method of travelling between the stars that was much more rapid than the system jump faster than light transport method used in Geary's time. Yes, sir. Oh, he's setting himself up for a fall there. You know, the, the whole, oh, it won't matter too much. And exactly. You're like, we know it's going to. <laughs> We've read the blurb. Yes. We know that it's going to. So, yeah, no, interesting. And, and certainly, I would guess quite a contrast to Rory's choice. So an interesting sort of something for each of our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) How does it deal with the relativistic stuff? Is it easy to get along with? The way the battles are handled are the high points of the books, to be honest. The way that the tactics are basically shown how to work is fantastic because it breaks your expectation that it's going to be, all right, here we go, straight at them, Helpful leather, fire all your guns. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the, you realize that, well, you can have two fleets approaching each other and it'll take days to get there because the vast distance is involved. Mm. And basically there's an old adage which they say is sort of hurry up and wait. Yeah, I know that, <laughs> I know that very well. It's the key to implementing your tactics correctly. Right. So it's very good. The battles are the highlights and the interplay character stuff is the bits that happen in between the battles that you're looking forward to. Right. Excellent. Okay. Interesting. All right. So where can we get this? Well, I haven't seen anywhere that doesn't sell it. And as far as the big bookshops are concerned, it's available on Kindle. It's available in paperback. It's even got audio download and an MP3 all from Amazon. So it's seven ninety nine in paperback. 383 in Kindle, £14 for the audio download, and the MP3 CD is £12.05. So we should make the point here that there's quite a series of books. So to begin with, you want to be starting with Dauntless, which is Lost Fleet Dauntless is the first of these. So we're going to head to an ad break, and then we'll be back with the last book of the session, which is from me. Natural remedies have always been some of the galaxy's finest, so when we discovered a wholly natural way of slimming down and reducing your appetite, we had to share it with everyone. Harnessing the amazing powers of our native parasitic life, we've solved an age-old problem. Vega Slimweed has been used by settlers of the region for decades with undeniable results and significant health benefits. 
If you think that Vegas Slim Weed could be the solution you're looking for, speak to your doctor today. Traveling with Vegas Slim Weed ingestive may constitute smuggling. Please check before your journey and declare yourself at customs for an internal search. Failure to digest does not constitute grounds for reimbursement. Side effects may include but are not limited to increased blood pressure and heart rate, insomnia, nervousness, blurred vision, restlessness or headache. Some forms of parasite may cause stomach side effects like constipation, dry mouth, nausea or vomiting. A small sample of patients exhibit full body paralysis, catatonic state and internal hemorrhaging. Parasite must be purged before pupation, else death will occur. Greetings, Commanders! Ambassador Crash here, and you are listening to Lave Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Join us live every Tuesday at 8.30pm BST for the latest news on Elite Dangerous and the fantastic community behind it. You can also chat to me live every Friday at 8pm BST on the official community Twitch stream, Crash Landing. Lave Radio. Crash tested and approved since the year 3200. Okay, and we're back, and we're into the last book choice, the final run to home. You can see the space station ahead, and this week I've been particularly dry and fuddy-duddy, and I've gone for a textbook, I'm afraid, guys. I've gone oh. for a little bit of education for you. Oh. I've decided to select Age of Wonders by David G. Hartwell. Now, this is probably the oldest book that we've chosen to talk about on the podcast, this particular edition is 1996. It's been previously released in 1984. Now, the thing is with Age of Wonders, and I'll give you a little bit of background on the author. David G. Hartwell, uh, he's an editor for Tor, and he is the editor for the Best SF1, the Best SF2. I think they're on like the Best SF20 at the moment, something like that. Now, I had the very fortune to meet David Hartwell last year. First of all, he was at the science fiction masterclasses at the Royal Observatory. So he popped in just to see us while we were having a lecture from Neil Easterbrook, or rather a seminar from Neil Easterbrook, it wasn't really a lecture. And then he was at Fantasy in the Court, which was at the Cecil Road Bookshop, where basically lots and lots of authors of science fiction and fantasy turned up just to hang out at Cecil Court. Now, if you know Cecil Court at all. It's basically it's a set of bookshops in London that they're quite little tiny boutique bookshops that really like first editions and they really like original versions mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. So you can get quite exclusive copies of stuff. Mm -hmm. And basically Karen and I just rocked up down there. We had tickets to go and we were surrounded by all the great and the good of science fiction and fantasy. So you had Peter Hamilton there, you had Joe Abercrombie there, you had Adrian Tchaikovsky there. Everyone, you know, everyone that I could think of. And of course, you had a little selection of American authors and American publishers who were there because it was just before Worldcon. So, right. you know, and David, David Hartwell was there. So I got a little bit of a chat with him. He kind of looked at me quizzically as to why I was standing anywhere near him. I, <laughs> you know, the guy, he's in his 70s or 80s now. So he's, you know, he's knocking on, but um, certainly very pleasant chap, very quietly spoken. Now, Age of Wonders, which he produced, is essentially... It's a bit like a primer for what is science fiction and what was science fiction. So it gives you a bit of an idea of what the genre is and what it means to read science fiction, what it is to be interested in science fiction and who are we for writing it, who are we for reading it and what kind of traits and things do we have and how has it changed and stuff. And he, he really discusses it well. And unlike many of... And, Bear in mind, I've read a lot of academic textbooks on science fiction. Mm. Unlike many of those textbooks, which are quite wordy, this is really accessible. So I'm going to read you a section, okay? okay. And this okay. will give you a bit of an idea. This is from page 15, chapter 1. It's a section in the middle of the chapter. The chapter's titled, The Golden Age of Science Fiction is 12. This is an outsider's guidebook and roadmap through the world of science fiction, pointing out the historical monuments, backyard follies highways and back streets of the SF community, a tour of main events and sideshows and a running commentary on why the SF world is the way it is. I hope it will be particularly useful for the casual curious, the neophyte reader, and of course the person who knows people in SF and wonders why they are that way. Is your child threatened by the strange stuff or by the companionship of lovers of science fiction? Does SF rot the mind and ruin the character? 
Just how wild and crazy are those SF people? What do they really do? Where do they come from? Why do they stay in the SF world? This tour, if successful, should take you not only through the nooks and crannies of SF, but also into some unexpected aspects of the everyday world as well. Written science fiction like cooking, mathematics or rock and roll is a whole bunch of things that some people can understand or do and some not. We all know people who love cooking, math or rock, perhaps all three, and others who can hardly boil water, add 2 plus 2 or distinguish music from noise. Your present tour guide stopped trying to convert people to instant appreciation of science fiction years ago when he finally understood that most new readers have to go through a process of SF education and familiarisation before they can love it. Just because somebody can read does not mean that he necessarily can read SF. Just as the ability to write Arabic numerals and add and subtract does not mean you necessarily can or want to perform long division. <laughs> Gives you, you know, it's right to the bone. And he's very good as well at being self-deprecating mm. and placing himself within the context. He's just as critical about himself as he is about anything else. And he takes you through the 1950s. He talks about the great and the good of that time. Takes you through the 60s. Talks about the new wave. Takes you right up into the 90s. The interesting thing about the commentary of the 90s, you know, it's obviously it's a pre-internet summary of the genre. So you do get the kind of sense of a snapshot of that time. And that's actually, that's a blessing and a, and a curse because it's a blessing in that it feels like it has a closer understanding of some of the previous period mm. but it's also a curse because some of the things that he might talk about about you know oh oh well the genre is bigger than it's ever been before well you've no idea right now but <laughs> yeah that's that's the one big shortcoming it has isn't it it's that as soon as it's published it's out of date kind of thing i think everything has that problem some things manage more timelessly than others mm. textbooks where they're attempting to encapsulate what the genre is what the genre was it's particularly tricky to stay timeless mm. I've got Orson Scott Card's very good book on how to write science fiction and fantasy. And he's got some great, great examples in there of things that you do and things you don't do and what this means. And here's a nice example of how to do this. Mm. But it still feels, and that was, I think that was like 96 that was published. And that still feels quite dated. Right. Mm. Whereas this, the way in which it writes about history kind of doesn't feel so dated Apart from those moments where you go, yeah, no, we've got the internet now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Amazon didn't exist back then. Yeah. So. so when was it first published down in, say, 84, was it? Yeah, 84 originally and then reissued in the mid-1990s. So there's some updates in there. There's some references to 1990s work. Some particular authors, you know, are referenced in there. Gwyneth Jones, for example, and a couple of others who are, are sort of more 1990s than earlier. But it does give you a bit of a tour of the great and the good. I'll give you some some examples. I'm I'm sorry if I'm putting you guys on the spot a little bit here, uh, but but Rory's put me on the spot by the fact that I haven't read Hyperion. So, you know, so that's fair. So either of you read Delaney? No, no. Never read Sam Delaney. No. Okay, Sam Delaney, well worth a read. Dalgren, seminal work. Or Octavia Butler, perhaps? No, no not no. read Octavia Butler. Okay, so if you were looking at uh, racial representation in science fiction and how race is explored as a theme in science fiction, Samuel Delaney, Octavia Butler would be two writers you might look at. You might also look at Octavia Butler for the way in which she represents women. Mm -hmm. Ursula Le Guin? No. Read any Ursula no. Le Guin? No. no. Okay. Let's see. Anything right. before Gibson... I don't think I'm going to have okay, much okay, luck well, with. Well, that's fine. Gibson's mentioned, so you're all right there. So, But, you know, there is a whole plethora of writers who were discussing, experimenting, and some of the experiments and the things that we're seeing new writers writing about, they're kind of things that have been written about 20 years before. And it's interesting to see where the links are and how, mm -hmm. the, you know, how the things join together. Now, the interesting thing is that Hartwell joins Arthur C. Clarke's work to Stapleton. And that, for me, is very interesting because I've got Stapleton. You know, I've, I've got the book. I've the particular one that, that's well known. But I'd not connected him with Arthur C. Clarke. You, you look at different bodies of work and you can kind of see. And H.G. Wells, obviously, they talk about. Jules Verne, they talk mm. about. But the idea that Wells defined a tradition that then this writer was influenced by Wells and this writer was right. influenced by so Wells. Right. So, so he's on. captured all the themes. He's not missing out on... Yeah all this new theme suddenly came along in 1998 and he's, yeah. he's missing it because the themes are generally there anyway. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can kind of see them extrapolating through. I mean, what we have today, quite a lot of the escapist fantasy, which if you take Jack Campbell, which you've referenced, Colin, some of that would be influenced by the 50s, the real sort of golden age escapist right out there science fiction. Yeah. But then you've got the alliance with, I'm trying to pull hard science into it. So, you know, so that's a fusion of two different sort of strands. Whereas Simmons, you're looking at a little bit of fantasy allegorical, mm -hmm. you know, placed in there. Then you've got Ian M. Banks. Mm -hmm. Then you've got, from what you were talking about, a little bit of Asimov because you've got future predictions. So you've got yeah, uh, you yeah, know, that's, science. Yeah, that's just... Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, perhaps a bit of Arthur C. Clarke in, in terms of what's there because the sort of doom element. Mm. You know, one or two other writers you can you can kind of see and you can extrapolate those themes. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, no writer is trying to be a copy of anything else, but there is certainly a standing on the shoulders of giants mm. element. Mm. And it is interesting to see all those... Those things from the perspective of somebody who probably lived alongside a few of them and talked with a few of them, met them at conventions and stuff. And he's writing in a pithy tone. You know, he's writing in a very real tone and chatting to you. He's not taking it too seriously. I don't think he could. No. I don't think I don't think he has those kind of bones in his body. Well, to, considering you know. that some of the chapters are titled Science Fiction Writers Can't Write for Sour Apples... Or yeah. <laughs> let's get science fiction back into the gutter where it belongs. I don't think <laughs> I don't think he's it taking is that himself serious. seriously. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know that that is exactly it. And I mean, he talks about the tensions between this sort of very out there escapism and trying to be literary mm. and trying to be mechanical and you know being sort of too technologically obsessed, which you talked about at the start, yeah, Rory. Yeah. You know, he talks about all those kind of tensions and how those things have fitted and not fitted. Even some of the references to when I've read other textbook primers, there are certain populist authors that don't get talked about. Mm -hmm. So like Anne McCaffrey doesn't get talked about. Oh. David Hartwell talks about Anne McCaffrey. David Hartwell summarizes Anne McCaffrey, includes her, tells us where she fits in, everything else. He's not afraid to go and look at the stuff that's more populist. And he's also not afraid to say where some of these trends at particular times have been a bit weird. This person ran this magazine for X number of years and English wasn't his first language. Couldn't read it too well, but he was really, really obsessed and interested in anything that was scientific and wondrous. And so he just published all the stories. <laughs> I had these things in. And he, he then postulated a model that you know, one of these editors suggested the best science fiction story would be that you introduce a new astonishing idea every 700 words <laughs> right, oh. <laughs> Ow. oh my god <laughs> that could be you know that, that just this this sort of spiraling you know amazing future you know just incredible idea sort of david hartwell then comments actually this proved unsustainable <laughs> yeah <laughs> right, <did> you know? <laughs> so so yeah so it's a really sort of chatty and friendly companion to getting to know the genre and i think particularly with regards to and i was i was reading it with regards there's one or two chapters that are a little bit dismissive of tie-in fiction and of course, you have to remember, you know, he's writing it from the perspective of the 80s and the 90s. Oh, so Star Trek um, books then. Yeah, actually, Star Trek books are, are mentioned quite distinctly. Star Trek's mentioned quite distinctly. And the juvenile nature of science fiction on television, mm. moving into films, how the sophistication of those mediums, there was quite a discrepancy between the sophistication in books compared to the sophistication in those mediums, you know, during the 60s and 70s. Yeah. But even so, he covers all of those spaces. When we consider Elite Dangerous in relation to this, it gives a very clear indication, a very chatty and companionable indication of where science fiction stories like the stories that have been produced for Elite, like the story that is Elite as the game, mm -hmm. you know, how Elite Dangerous is, how the world works and so on and so forth where that all fits into the wider community. It lets you know, and I think, you know, we're guilty of it a little bit, of thinking because of this great tradition of this game is 30 years old, we remember it from our youth, we remember it as this great thing. Its actual splash in the wider SF community is kind of quite small. Mm. And you can kind of see it connected alongside where everything else sits in terms of its space opera style, in terms of how serious it is. Because I know David Braben talks a lot about how he wants it all to be very hard science. And you're actually thinking, well, to be honest, playing the game is yeah. you know, not very hard science. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, but I, one of the things that I did like, just to touch on the game for a second, I just visited Kepler eighty six, and the, I think I'm fingers crossed, I'm the first person out there. And <laughs> sure enough, Kepler eighty six was one of the first places where they discovered an exoplanet in the Goldilocks zone. Mm. And unfortunately, it's a massive gas giant which is bigger than Jupiter. And a lot of scientists were speculating that there's going to be a, a little Yavin type four moon that's mm-hmm. habitable round mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when I got there, no moon. <laughs> Which is a bit of a shame, because that's where my story starts. I, I concede that to you totally, Colin. There is a hard science element to the vision, and that's entirely fine. And you do get that with other science fiction stories. You know, if you think about Asimov, there is a hard science element, you know, to everything that, you know, that Asimov was doing. But there's also quite a contrivance to it, too, yeah. to sort of manage this massive empire amongst the stars how on earth that managed to get set up, how on earth that works. But he does explain it, but he also draws a curtain over it at particular times because it, you don't need to know. Mm. And psychohistory, you know, it is kind of pseudoscience. It's not really, you know, it's sort of extemporized and, and everything else. So we, we've always had this balance between these sort of casting future imaginative thrill elements and the sort of grounded elements. And Hartwell's book really does give you both those senses and looks at how different writers have interpreted it. It's available on Amazon at the moment. It's quite old, so you're looking to try and secure probably an older copy. So you've got a hardcover from £1.75 and a paperback from £1.73, but I would assume those are both used copies. Yes, they are. You've then got new copies range from hardcover £53.33 and new paperbacks would be £14.26. And then there's some collectible editions as well that you can pick up. But that looks like that might be the 1985 version. Um, So you may have to hunt a little bit to track down the slightly later revised one. I was very fortunate I picked up the revised one. And as I say, it's a delight. 1996, the revised edition. Mm. That may well help anybody trying to find it. So yeah, no, it is an absolute delight and well worth a, a sort of a delve into Okay, so that's it for another episode of Data Slate. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, then you can email info at Lave Radio, Facebook slash Lave Radio, at Lave Radio on Twitter, or you can join the Skype chat channel by adding Fozza101 to your Skype contacts. You can join our TeamSpeak server where commanders come to hang out and chat. That's at laveradio.teamspeak3.com. And if you feel like a little late-night company on an adventure in the stars, check out... Thank you.